Welcome to the Bovi UK podcast, where we will be discussing diseases from diagnosis through to management. These podcasts are aimed for registered vets and veterinary nurses. If you're listening as a pet owner, then we always advise that if you have any concerns about your animal, then please consult with your local veterinary surgeon. So thank you for joining us today. We are going through an FIP update. So we already have quite a lot of information online through various sources, um, looking at FIP. So today we're going to do more of an update on where we are because we've had legal treatments available now in the UK since the latter half of 2021. And we're very fortunate that we've had the specialists come together who run the FIP advice email, which can be found at fipadvice at gmail.com, where they answer queries on a purely voluntarily basis, as well as producing a fantastic document along with Sev, Danielle and Steph. So today I'm joined by Emmy Barker and Sam Taylor. So Emmy Barker qualified from Bristol Vet School in 2003 and was awarded a PhD in June 2011 for research into hemoplasmas and has been an ECVIM diplomat since 2016. She's currently a referral clinician in small animal medicine at Langford Vets, Bristol, with clinical and research interests in infectious disease and molecular diagnostics, in particular regarding feline infectious peritonitis. And Sam Taylor completed her residency at Bristol and was awarded the European Diploma in 2009, becoming an RCVS specialist in feline medicine in 2010. She currently works at Lumbury Park Vet Specialists and is an ISFM Academy of Feline Practitioners lead and consultant. And she loves all things cat and has been very excited to be studying the novel treatments for FIP. So welcome both and thank you for very much for coming along and um, sharing your knowledge of FIP. So maybe Emmy, you can kick us off. That's great. Thanks for inviting us, Emma. I think both Sam and myself will agree that the last year or so has been an absolute amazing whirlwind of a time going from reports of medications that were effective in the management of this disease, but that weren't legally available to us to a time when they now are are legally available to us and we see many cats with the possibility of a cure and we've gone from a 100% or near 100% mortality to with treatment less than 20% mortality practically overnight with the provision of these antivirals and this is this is obviously amazing but it has gone from sadly an equal opportunity killer to worse for those that don't have the funds or those that have limited insurance but there are other things that we've seen as well. There's been a shift in version of proof and what we do to to make the or confirm the diagnosis of these cats with FIP and, and Sam and I were thinking about talking about that today. One of the things I wanted to go through with Sam from the beginning actually is where does she stand in terms of should these cats be referred or not? I know what, what my feelings are on this, um, but Sam, where do you stand? Yeah, I think it's really um, interesting and some very relevant points there. We never usually... With FYP, we never had to think about the cost of treatment because we'd never had any treatment. Whereas now, what we are seeing, I'm sure you've seen, is cases where they've had extensive diagnostics performed and then there's no funds left for treatment, which is, you know, really, really tragic and frustrating. However, on the other side, we don't want people using these drugs unnecessarily because they are expensive. So there's got to be a middle ground there. And the question where they when they should be referred probably the majority of cases no and certainly with a straightforward case I say straightforward because they're not all straightforward but I think you and I probably see a subset of more complex cases so I think the more straightforward cases with 
we're happy to support people with advice, can be treated in practice. And then the more complex cases where you're not sure of the diagnosis, it is reasonable to refer because it's not the type of drug protocol you want to launch into without some proof because you're committing the client to a large amount of money. And what if the cat didn't have FIP and would have recovered anyway, and now it's having a 12-week course of, of treatment? Um, but you and I, I think, in referral, then have to be very responsible about how we spend the money. Um, and we've certainly had cases that have had, particularly neuro cases, that have had MRIs and they've spent, you know, you and I know, £4,000 or so before presumptive, even then, diagnosis is, is reached. So where do you stand, Amy, on trial treatment? I think that's a really interesting question. Laura. I was going to say, yeah, the majority of cases that we have coming into the feline centre now at Langford are those neurological cases that are presenting in that way, possibly because we've got so used to triaging the forms of FIP before they get to us and, and, and hand these vets the information leaflets that we've got available regarding diagnosis and, and treatment of these cats with FIP. My my feeling is, is that we do have to do with these cats. We do have to, as far as we can do within these owners' finance, get at least a, in close to a, a diagnosis of FIP. And for some of these cats, it's really easy to have that strong clinical suspicion of FIP where they've got a relatively young juvenile or young adult cat with large amount of very proteinaceous low in its abdomen. But I do think that should be still looking at the fluid samples under the microscope that they're not septic for example we've definite cases where they've said can I start treatment and we've gone actually please look at the sample and these have come back as been septics that have needed surgery we've had the odd cat sadly the odd that has heart failure and when the fluid samples have been examined have found to have low protein levels which would not really be consistent with the diagnosis of FIP and those cats have different treatment I think ideally we would be either performing um, reverse transcriptase PCR to look for the virus within these fluid samples or to get immuno um, staining of these samples as well. And that can also be done on tissue sampling as well, so tissue, tissue aspirates or biopsies. But we know that these cases we shouldn't necessarily delay the start of treatment whilst waiting for those results to come back in terms of that more definitive testing. I think it's good to think about the treatment, wait for the cytology to come back, but not necessarily the PCR. But we do know that if cats are improving, but those you know, additional steps are negative, I wouldn't stop treatment um, because we do know that we do get some, sadly, some false negative with those, you know, confirmatory steps in that process. But and I know that there are some vets out there that talk about not doing those tests to save them a little bit of money. But again, I think it's worth thinking about how much they really do save by not doing those tests. And I, I worked it out yesterday and actually they're probably saving less than 5% of the overall estimated cost, particularly when it comes down to that treatment. And it's often actually way below 5% of their estimated overall cost less than the cost of a few days of treatment. And we know that these samples don't store well, so we can't, they can't take the sample, sit it in the fridge or the freezer and see whether their cat doesn't respond and then send them for testing. They, they do have to send them at that time. So again, I, I do, where people can, recommend doing that because I don't know whether, Sam, you felt the same. We are now getting a few cats where they tick every box for FIP in terms of they're young, they've got a lot of proteinaceous fluid in their tummy, but 
they're not getting better on treatment. And actually, when we've looked at the PCR results or the immunostaining, they've been negative. Uh, Sam, have you seen any cases like that? Yeah, I think it's a really difficult area. And we had a case just two weeks ago that I felt was a classic FIP case with an effusion, et cetera. And we started treatment and it responded really well. It was a different cat after two doses of remdesivir, totally different cat. And then the PCRs came back negative. You'll feel that you're in a slight pickle situation, but I think we have to use our sort of brain and put everything together and monitor what you can monitor. So with that cut, I rescanned it. The fluid effusion had resolved. I have no other explanation for that. And therefore I'll continue the treatment. But I agree with you in the ones that then haven't responded. That's really very, very difficult because are they truly cats that are resist, that have FIP and are not responding to treatment? Because we know that some cats won't respond to treatment. And that's something I think people sometimes find quite hard to understand and owners quite find quite hard to understand. Although we've gone from 100% fatality to 20% fatality, we still have 20%, you know, we think of cats that are not responding. And as we don't have brilliant alternative, you know, sort of second line antivirals to use at this point, they're available. It is very difficult. So I think what we have to do in that situation is go back. And sometimes I think when you and I have gone back through all the histories, we've thought, hold on a second, let's look for excluding other diseases, go through that process. And then sometimes then increase the dose of the antivirals and see if we have a response from that. Because I think that you and I, through the FIP advice line, are seeing quite a lot of cases where they've had partial or inadequate responses that then when we increase the dose, do respond much better. Do you feel that's a diagnosis then in those cases, if we increase the antiviral dose and then they seem to improve? I think that's a really difficult one because these are often known as where they might have skirted around spending some of that money right at the beginning to really confirm the diagnosis because there's that they know that they're financially going to be limited. And now we're talking about them having to spend a reasonable amount more, probably about kind of up to 50% more money on treatment, which is already going to cost them quite a bit to try and get an answer. And it's all that temptation as to you know what other drugs might we be considering what other diseases should we be considering and and I had a actually yesterday was going through that with the the vet and and, and talking to them about you know, what are our other differentials for young cats with suffusive disease with you know uh, enlarged lymph nodes in their abdomen or what we think are probably enlarged lymph nodes and and going could they have these odd forms of bovine tuberculosis could they have an idiopathic inflammatory disease process or even something like glorosin fibroplasia because these are coexistent and it's up to that drawing board going what what have we got to support at the beginning a lot of those cases will have very similar profiles in terms of their segment signalment clinical pathology changes and imaging and how do we get samples from those cats and yeah it's really difficult to know whether or not we start reaching for the steroids at that point, whether we try nation. Yeah, no, it's a real difficult one. But actually, I think one of the things that you at the beginning there was, you know, you had a cat trying to get a diagnosis all amount of effusion. And I've had cases that have come in neurologically where we've gone, okay, do we spend a few thousand pounds on doing MR and CSF? And we've found fluid on a point of care ultrasound, not the specialist ultrasonographer going, you know, quick, let's put the ultrasound on their tummy or on their chest, found fluid, sampled that, sent that off for analysis to support a diagnosis of FIP and haven't put them through the MR scanner. Yeah, yeah. Right. And yeah, we, we, Same, yeah. I've, 
I've almost started blocking the door to MRI now for the neurologist when they're bringing young pure breed through. Um, and just said, have you done any abdominal imaging? No, we don't go into ultrasound with neurologists. We only go MRI. And had exactly the same as you. Yeah. And you saved yourself, what, two and a half thousand? Also, a lot of those cases, because, because they have a degree of obstructive hydrocephalus, concern regarding spinal fluid sampling because of increased intracranial pressure. So again, in those cases, identifying fluid for analysis or changes elsewhere in the body that are supportive of FIP are incredibly helpful because there aren't that many disease processes where you're going to get neurological signs and evidence of vasculitis elsewhere in the body. Toxoplasma is one of them, definitely. And, and we would be doing toxoplasma serology in those cases and looking at, you know, the balance of the odds is going to, towards them being an FIP in those kind of cases, but I would still do that additional testing where I can do. Um, but it's really difficult though, those, those cases where, you know, do we increase the dose? And I think it's worth having that discussion with these owners where we don't have a nail diagnosis or where we're going for treatment before we get the immunostaining or the PCR results back is that we are, we're doing a treatment trial. We are giving them the medication because we know to get more of a sample um, to analyze, to go towards that real definitive diagnosis of tissue analysis is just very invasive for a lot of these cats and might not change. So yeah, we, it's, but it's having that discussion with the owners that we don't always have the everything, you know, all the information available to us. It's not always there, but sometimes that's okay. And we are looking for that response, but where they don't respond, it's a really difficult conversation for, for the owners. And I, I know that we, we are seeing some cats that don't appear to get better on treatment and we don't know whether that's because they truly do have FIP and they've got resistance and that's a a real worry as we continue to use antivirals and or if people use antivirals inappropriately that we might get resistance occurring or whether they've got something else that actually requires a very different specific treatment but those cases are incredibly challenging to reach for because we only have legally available to us Remdesivir, which is the parent product of GS441524. We... Yeah, and I think you've made a really important point there, which is something we've seen through the advice line, and that's about owner communication. And I think I've been guilty probably as well of being so excited to treat it, kind of tempering some of that expectation and, and documenting in our notes. And I know it sounds really boring, you know, making sure that the owner does understand that it's not a guaranteed cure, that it requires a long treatment, that it requires a, a commitment from them that they could relapse at the end of the, of the treatment. And so they could spend all that money and then they could, you know, the cat could relapse. So that's negative because we're seeing, you know, these brilliant responses, but I'm just trying to make sure right in my notes, you know, that we've had a really sensible conversation about how we're very positive about the product, you know, and we hope it's going to work, but we're learning about it. And as you say, we don't have another drug in our back pocket to, to add into the process. Um, so I'm encouraging everyone to just you know, keep really good notes and, and have really open communication with owners. And that's hard because FIP is quite a misunderstood disease from vets sometimes, oh, definitely from, from owners. And you touched a little bit, and I'm going slightly off script here, but you touched um, slightly on inappropriate treatment there. And I don't want to be sort of negative about this, but we have seen, have seen the odd case where, as you say, they've had very minimal testing and they've then been treated with long courses of you know, expensive of, of drugs. And we've had one notable case being treated on the basis of serology alone. And so that's one of my slight bugbears. So I wanted to, to get it in here how, before we move on slightly, and that's what do you think about coronavirus serology? I never advised it. I sometimes have cats referred into us 
that have had coronavirus study performed usually as part of panels that often include other acute phase protein testing or cytology um, and other tests. SIP can help put, you know, build up that picture exposure. And I don't know whether or not it was truly from NEOS that, you know, that there have been more cats been euthanized on the grounds of, you know, a positive result than that have died of FIP. I don't think it's quite that bad. <laughs> But there have definitely been many cats that following a positive serological titer have not had the outcomes that they should have had. When a huge percentage of cats that are in multi-cat households and actually cats that are in singleton households that positive results. Um, and the ubiquitous virus, it's, it's out there all the time. It rarely causes uh, clinical signs in our cats, but they can be seropositive to it. I think we're realizing way more now in the era of, of COVID-19 that these coronaviruses are circulating. Some of them and others, we, we get infected, then we get an antibody response to it, and then our immunity wanes, and then we get infected again. And this is exactly what we see in cats that are infected with feline coronavirus. Um, so that infection comes and goes, but these cats very rarely show any clinical signs um, associated with it. So testing for evidence of that exposure is just not helpful. There have been, I think there was one study that talked about the use of antibody testing alongside looking at lymph node cytology in cases where FIP was a differential and possibly building towards that big picture. It helps. Everything else is not helpful for you. Diagnostic wise, you can do that to try and again, increase or decrease your suspicion. But it is the last test that I do in these kind of cases. I really, mostly because I can't interpret it. It doesn't, I have. Loads yeah. of the tests out there that will help me. That that is definitely the the what least value for money I find in our particular armory of of things that have feline coronavirus in the title. It causes a lot of confusion, I think, because we get queries about testing in contact cats. So where they've had a cat with FIP in the household, should they measure titers? That's a question that comes up, which you know is worthless, really. As you said, there's coronavirus in that house if you've had a cat with FIP. So I don't see any value in doing that. And we've had the odd query about monitoring treatment with these novel antivirals by using antibodies, which really is very pointless, but that has come up a few times. But if we think about, they can remain seropositive for long, long periods of time, can't they? You know, over many months. So monitoring you know, antibodies is not going to be useful at all when you're treating us. Um, but what do you advise monitoring? Emmy, if you're treating a case of FIP, you know, you're confident of diagnosis and you're using the novel therapies, what are you going to monitor? In part, I think it comes down to costs and because that comes to be influence. And, and actually, this is how I manage every disease process that I have with the cats that I have coming into me, whether that's because they're hypothyroid or diabetic or cats with FIP, that we know that these cats need treatment. If they don't have treatment, they're going to die of their disease process or they're going to become very sick associated with it. So my first pri priority, once I've got that diagnosis nailed, is the treatment. And then I look to see what else we can do on top of that. And whether that is a very basic physical examination findings. I'm sorry, Sam, but I'm going to use your tip on um, clipping a little bit of fur off the cat's back and tape around their tummy to see how wide their abdomen is at its widest point, whether or not. <laughs> That's my very crude, very cheap assessment of the sighting. Well, you know, if it, if it works for Slim as well, then it can work for us. Um, and I think it's it, sometimes it's those crude techniques. And, and I think we really forget that 
the cheapest, most value for money tool that these owners have is actually the brains of their vet surgeons that are looking after their cat. <laughs> good value for money. Um, we look at so many different things and we're able to analyze it from where the cat we've seen before and the cat we have now, all the clinical notes. So with all the tests that we can do, physical examination and finding out how these cats are doing is absolutely key and the cheapest tests that we have in front of us. So physical examination, weighing them, they'll often increase their weight and that won't necessarily be because of fluid accumulations. Usually these cats have been losing weight, losing condition, and whilst their fluid might hopefully disappear over the first few weeks, they'll then start gaining the weight. They're often growing cats. So we need to make sure that we don't suggest to account for that. So that physical examination is really important. After that, again, if we have a bit of money, we are going to be wanting to make sure any of the clinical pathological changes that we saw beforehand. So any anemias that they might have, um, any hypoglobulinemias that they might have in there, we want to see those returning to normal. We want to be making sure as best as we can do that they are normal and have been for a little while before we stop treatment. And those clean path changes like a persistent anemia or a persistent hypoglobulinemia might be the first warning we have that actually all is not well in our cats, that we might not have completely achieved remission, that we might want to think about increasing the doses of the antivirals sooner rather than later, rather than waiting for them to relapse after we stop treatment, you know, giving them that chance to have a higher dose whilst they're still almost in remission. Um, again, with the fluid, we look for that. So we look for evidence of those changes. I do worry a bit if we've got cats that have residual enlarged lymph nodes, when it's really difficult whether we're going to get, you know, that chronic stimulation that's still going to be present. And then we, we're still trying to work out which acute face proteins are helpful or not. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, I'd like to know more about that, as I'm sure you would, because it would be quite a convenient way of monitoring them. Um, and we've certainly seen, yeah, monitoring really vary. And sometimes when you've got very well-funded clients and you do lots and lots of monitoring, as you say, it actually can raise more questions. Um, so if you have a cat, uh, we had a case that was totally clinically normal at 12 weeks and brilliant, really, really happy. And then somebody decided to re-ultrasound the cat. Um, it was biochemically normal. You know, everything else was normal, but it still had, you know, slightly big lymph nodes that were slightly hyperechoic. And I, I don't know what to do with, you know, sort of the honest answer was, I, I don't quite know what to do with that. You know, the, the fusion is dissolved. The cat's totally clinically normal. Everything else is normal. What do we expect? And I think that's probably what we're learning um and it's a little bit like I, I do find it slightly similar to treating lymphoma in some ways in cats in that we're doing sort of monitoring for remission I don't want to say remission because we hope they won't relapse but when you follow those cats the lymph nodes don't return 100% to normal they don't always relapse so it, it's a bit muddy there isn't it and and I, I I said to that owner if we hadn't scanned if we hadn't had the funds to scan we would have discharged the cat everything else was totally normal and it was clinically totally normal so how, oh, well, you and I always say you shouldn't do a test if it's not going to what you do. So I wish we hadn't done that <laughs> because then it didn't change what I did because I said, um, okay, we'll just monitor. Um, and I wonder in those cases if those acute phase proteins might be quite useful because if they're normal at that point, could we stop treatment and then maybe recheck them in a month? Do you think that's a useful sort of well, way of handling mean, those? I don't know whether it's useful, but it is something that I do. <laughs> yeah. is that at the moment yeah. I don't have enough evidence base 
to prove that it's useful, but the theory behind it is sound. And actually, there was a really interesting thing that you raised there regarding your treatment of lymphoma and the parallels that we have, and also hypothyroidism and the parallels that we have with treatment of FIP is that there are going to be some cats where we do this and they are biochemically and hematologically normal when at time of diagnosis and they may have neurological signs, they may have effusive disease, although it's less likely. But we still want to be doing monitoring in these cases because a small number of these cats do appear to get biochemical changes on treatment. And we don't know the mechanisms behind it. We know that they can, in people, they can get hepatopathies or um, transient um, kidney impairment. And we do see some cats that have had increases in ALT activity. Yeah. Um, and yeah. We and, and then it's always a judgment call as to what to do with them in terms of do we stop treatment, monitor it, do we give them um, hepatic support medication like methionine, milk thistle, um, and, and it's really difficult to know what the best is for those cats or could it be the disease process mm. that is, you know, just happens to be present. You know, I've certainly seen a few with sort of mod, well, mild to moderate increases in ALT around two, three hundred that stays static and we monitor it and it just sits there and we had one notable one that was referred for this it had an ALT of over a thousand at the end of 12 weeks of treatment that had normalized after two weeks of stopping the so we assumed that was related to the treatment but I would certainly say we're seeing those is that the figure you're seeing two or three hundred elevations in ALT this is mostly coming out of the FIP advice, yeah. So usually mm. slight increase is enough to make you sit up. And to be honest, any increase in ALT is going to be making us want to sit up in cats, try and work out what's happening there. But that's a difficult one because normally we'd be thinking, okay, if we're on a drug, let's do a, a, a drug holiday and see what happens. Yeah. We, we're in a difficult situation is to is to know how long we really should be treating them for. We know that we're basing the the, rec the current recommendations in terms of dose and in terms of duration, of course, on amazing work from Liz Peterson and his group in California, and also the really great work of Richard in Australia. And with their kind of perception that if we stop treatment before those three months, they were seeing increasing numbers of cats relapsing, but by no means every cat relapsed. And... and we, we do have that question going, you know, do we stop treatment at the end of the treatment phase, if they're clinically normal? The same question comes up with owners that can't afford the full yeah. three months of treatment. Mm. So where do you stand with that one, um, Sam? Yeah, we've encountered that. We've encountered it with a clinical case, um, a referred case as well. And I found it really difficult because the owners could afford, I think in that situation, about six weeks of treatment. So do we... Am I letting the owner down by letting them spend the money on six weeks of treatment that when that's a real financial stretch for them? And I think, again, that probably comes back to owner communication and being open and honest. And so what I said with, to them was that in the experience, as you say, of the Americans and the Australians, there are some cats that do seem to be cured after six weeks, but that I couldn't guarantee that to them. And in other countries, they, they have done done that in a proportion of cats. Who was, I think we were speaking to someone in China, I don't even remember, in one of our clinical clubs where they'd used some shorter courses and had really good good responses. I, I said to them, I think it's associated with probably a higher level of relapse um, and we prefer to treat for the recommended period. But do we euthanize that cat 
when we could have cured it with that, but we know that the client's putting it on their credit card and it's a stretch for them. And I think that's really difficult. And you've just got to be, I found that session being really open and honest with the client and saying, I can't promise you that, you know, that you won't spend this money and there'll be a relapse, but there is a, a chance. And we all know that the alternative is, is potentially, well, potentially worse, but maybe not potentially worse if we're stretching their finances. And I think that also raises a really interesting kind of concept that I don't think we've quite gone through on this session in terms of communications with clients is that there is a huge amount of information available online and we are aware that owners usually ones that uh, well certainly pre having legal options in the UK and even currently with some owners that don't necessarily have the finances to cover the complete courses they are going to various online forums they are sourcing medication from abroad and having them imported into the UK which is that but it's making vets in practice aware that this does happen but also I think it's it's a really difficult conversation to broach with owners but I think you know personally I think it is okay to let owners know that there is a black market out there because as soon as they go on any of these forums they're going to read about it and see about it but making owners aware that the importation of these products is illegal and the use of them in their pets not advised, I think that's a really important thing to recognise and important for vets in practice to recognise because otherwise I think it's difficult because I think vets in practice, if they're not familiar with these disease processes, they might have some faith lost from their owners because they didn't tell the owners about these products that are out there. Yeah. I think that's a good point. Yeah, it's a really good point. And I have to say, I haven't always done it, but I think you've raised a really good point because if we don't tell them, then it makes it look as though we're almost trying to make money yeah, from the products because they're going to go online and they do get a lot of peer-to-peer -peer support from the Facebook groups and things um, and offers of medication at cheaper prices. And so I suppose if we lay our cards on the table and say, this is the reason we want to use these drugs because we know what's in them. Uh, well, A, they're legal, but B, we know what's in them. They, we know they're safe. We know they're not toxic. We know how much of the product is in them. And I'm sorry, but we, if you go and use illegal drugs, we can't help you. We don't have the experience. And if something goes wrong or there's a side effect, we won't know, you know how to support you with that. Um, but I think you're right. That's probably something that we should deal with head on rather than wait for them to phone us cross that they found it cheaper on Facebook. Yeah. And I think it also raises something that came up. Some owners have been, you know, some illegal source of medication has given owners a guarantee that either their cat will get better or that they will have a refund of their medication. Yes. It's terrifying. And, and they had like cat owners going back to their vets having to legally where things where they were sadly part of that percentage that didn't get better with owners asking for refunds. And again, it's worth, yeah, as they've been really super open and honest with owners about the expectations of these products and the lengths to which some other companies will go to online to sell black market products, yeah. I think is yeah, quite important for us to, to. Yeah. So if you, same question back to you, if you had a client who could only afford, say, four to six weeks of treatment, would you still encourage them to start? using these drugs oh absolutely we know that if we've got a cat that will well sorry use the legal products not the illegal products yes, yes. Um, yes. if we had a cat that had fip we've got the diagnosis yeah because i would definitely ask them to start treatment but i think it's being really open and honest with them that we might not achieve the success that we ideally would like to we know that 
in humans that are managed with various viral disease processes that it is not just a combination of antivirals. It's usually a combination of anti-inflammatories and then later on immune modulatory medications. And we're not yeah. there yet with cats. We, we don't have that data set. We've got data pertaining to all the little individual components, but no one's really put it all together. And that's hopefully in the future, not the too distant future, but in the future. I still think it's worth trying in those. And we've got other agents that aren't as good. We don't feel that are as effective. Agents like methylopin, where people have sometimes been using those where cost has been limiting, particularly to extend these cats once they're in remission. So yeah. broaching that with owners going, yeah, it's still worth starting, but we might not necessarily achieve what we want to achieve, but it's still worth trying. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose on that, slightly on that cost front as well, we know that using the oral GS is slightly cheaper than using injectable remdesivir. And you and I have been advising traditionally through the FRP advice line on the basis of the Australian experience to give them a couple of weeks worth of remdesivir before changing to, to GS or one to two weeks. Have you had cases that you've treated solely orally or, or you've moved more rapidly to oral treatment. Oh, absolutely. Definitely. We've done that. There are some cats and I'm sure that we've all been there that despite the most cat friendly practice, cats do not want the injected, that they are, they will let owners medicate them with tablets, but an injection is absolutely off the cards. And I think we also have to be realistic. The in, I'm aware of some owners that have been bringing their cats diligently into the practices every day for these injections because they can't face the concept of doing it themselves. I've known of vets that have hospitalized cats for those two weeks for those injections and that will considerably, if we are charging properly for our time, that will massively add to the cost for these cats. And so I think we do need to be discussing with owners, them doing the injections themselves. And for some owners, that is a step too far. So we in reaching yeah. for tablets in those cases. And I think that's okay. If you look at the studies in America, a lot of the, those original studies, yes, they were on injectable, but they were injectable GS. They, if you look at the data from a lot of the black market products where data has been published, usually on owner experiences, a lot of that is based on oral, straight oral GS alone, yeah. or at least what we think is probably oral GS. And again, they seem to be having a reasonable response rate in those kind of cases. So I don't have an issue in going to that. I know that there's, a, again, another centre in the UK that will typically start off these cats with a vial or two of medication. And then when they discharge the cats from the hospital, rather than train the owners to inject, they will, again, just start straight onto the tablets at that stage. Possibly they, they keep the, the injectable remdesivir in stock. And they, once they have a cat that's improving, they order the GS to, for them to go home. I do wonder whether or not there's a degree of convenience in that respect. Absolutely, understandably, because we have no evidence base to say that's not a wrong thing to do. Has to be mm -hmm. with an individual cat in mind. And particularly, there are some cats who you cannot get tablets into. Again, I'm in the minority, but there are some cats where I've never ever been able to get a worming tablet into on a single occasion, let alone every day. Yeah, I, actually, it's a really good point because the, the little British shorthair we had come in recently, the owner had been trying to medicate with various antibiotics and things. And the cat was also very sick with FIP and therefore not eating. So hugely difficult to medicate orally. And the client was considering 
euthanasia on the basis that she thought she wouldn't be able to give the cat 12 weeks of medication because you couldn't have injected him either as crazy little British short hair. But actually, I tried with discussion saying when the cat feels better, it will eat better and you'll be able to medicate it in food. And it totally changed her perception of the treatment. So we hospitalized the cat for a few days on remdesivir and as predicted, it responded so well. It was eating like a horse and then she could medicate the cat very easily in food. So I do think compliance, of obviously one of my bugbears as well, um, is really important. And we know that we can crush the GS and Licky Licks is your friend here and other such treats. But Licky Licks, we found being really, really effective at giving GS tablets. So yeah, don't, I suppose the other thing is don't just pack the owner off with 12 weeks of tablets to support them. I think if we were giving them injections, we would support them hugely and we would demonstrate how to give them and we would go through great detail about how to do that. But sometimes we give people tablets and we don't help them at all. And they've probably got a feisty little British short hair, a feisty little Bengal or something that's had been diagnosed with FIP. So yeah, that's, that would be my other thing is just at the time you're seeing the cat is very sick, it's difficult to medicate. And the client may perceive that they're then trying to get tablets into a sick cat we found they actually respond quite rapidly to treatment and feel loads better and then you can get meds in easier i don't know if that's your experience as well but we found the improvement to be quite rapid which I've is very helpful cats where when, when they were very sick at the beginning particularly neurological you know we can inject them not a problem but as soon as they were feeling better there was absolutely no way that we could inject them without a bit of of, of chemical help and, and even then those cats became more resistant to it. So we are we know that there are some owners and vets that have been using gabapentin, sometimes a bit of buprenorphine, a couple of hours before injections um, to try and facilitate that. We know that some of these cats feel a bit down after the injection, so we've been giving it to them in the evening so they get to sleep that off. We know that some vets have been having to reach for an owner's to reach for things like trazodone to administer them. And again, in those cases, we have to look at that. What are we achieving with those cases? Should we switch to oral medication? But actually, I think your discussion on compliance brings up a really interesting point there as to what do we do if these cats are not responding over the soft into relapse because one of those possibilities is going to be compliance whether the owner is just not able to inject but is too afraid to tell you or they're just or they're doing a bit of a truder and they're going through the skin or whether the cat is just not eating the medication or taking it in food or spitting the tablet out behind the sofa once the owner's disappeared how do you address those kind of cases um, where the, these cats aren't responding or they're relapsing yeah, I think obviously the first thing we look at is dosage. And I actually had this conversation with Richard Malik recently about relapse or, or partial response cases. And his feeling was that the, if the diagnosis is correct, going back to what we discussed before, that the majority of them will respond when you increase the dose. But he's quite bold with his dose increases and he's made me be a little bolder where I will probably increase by five megapack a day. And he also, we were discussing whether we should, once we get to doses around 20 mg per kick, divide that dose twice daily, which then adds another compliance aspect um, to it. And we really should be giving the GS without food, which again is difficult because I just told you to give it in licky licks. So what I've been doing is getting people to fast their cats overnight, take the food away overnight so they're hungry in the morning and then they can give it in just a tiny bit of licky licks and then feed, give them their food and then take the food away again if they're dosing twice a day. So I have found that to be quite effective in the majority of cases, that kind of dose increase, but being bold with it 
have you seen the same response yeah, when you've increased the, dose? The other thing that often comes up is that I mean, we've got these guidelines that the initial guidelines we brought out kind of part way through last year, and then we had updated guidelines on treatment that that came out when oral GS became legally available in the UK. And in there, we had dose increases in there. And I've had owners and vets come to me going, my, cat, my cat's got effusive disease, they're on 10 mg per kg, but they're not really getting any better. And you suggest, well, what about a dose increase? And they're like, but they're on 10 mg per kg, that's the treatment dose for this poor form of FIP. And actually, I think we really need to be let, letting people know that at the moment, these are like the minimum dose rates that we are recommending based on the anecdotal experience that we have available to us. And that some of these cases do require a bit more. We've got, you know, queries regarding resistance. Then and I think, yeah, as I say, we have to be quite bold in our dose increases. We have to make sure that we're giving those initial starting values as minimums and increasing as these cats get bigger. And, you know, could it be that this cat has gained half a kilo or a kilo in weight and suddenly what we thought was a 10 or 12 mg per kg dose is now like a 6 or 8 mg per kg dose in our cats? particularly the ones that are very young when we start treatment. So I think we write in terms of it's almost like a go big or go home with these wanting to yeah. see that response. Yeah. We've got to be sure in that first little while that we are giving enough to to make a significant difference in these cases. I think there's probably some individual variation as well, isn't there, do you think, to to response? It's not a one-size-fits-all, no, these doses. No, absolutely not. And we... I think there's going to be a degree of absorption issues and I think the general feeling is, is that the bioavailability is about 50% in a lot of these cases where, which is why the, comes back to the doses that we're not, we don't need to talk about in too much detail, but it does come down to, yeah, individual absorption of medication, penetration into the tissues that are affected. We know that FIP is a spectrum of disease. It's not just vasculitis and it's not just granuloma formation some cats are very much one direction some cats are in the other but we have all these cats that are in between we are now just about starting to scratch the surface of the various different issues with their cats immune systems that are making them prone to getting FIP there's ongoing research studies looking into why some cats get it and that probably also relates into what kind of doses of antivirals they need and potentially whether they will ever be a responder to antiviral treatment. We know in, in the situation in humans that have COVID that actually only in the early part of the cases do the antivirals seem to make a difference and the wonder drug dexamethasone seems to make a difference to the people who <laughs> they were really sick and maybe, but we know that the opposite appears to be true in our cats that actually the overwhelming majority respond really well, even the super sick ones to antiviral drugs. Um, that if you go back a few years, the administration of steroids, whilst temporarily tends to perk them up like it does for most disease processes. In the longer term, there's cats that, you know, ultimately did respond to other agents, didn't do so well that had steroids. So I think we are looking at a, a variable population of cats in here and I think that also comes back to that discussion with owners, that communication with owners, that it is going to be on an individual basis. We have to look at each cat as an individual, dose them as an individual, monitor them as an individual, and expect their response to that treatment to be as an individual. Look at them mm. really holistically, and we can generalise a lot, but we have to be very mindful that we have all these little individual situations 
that we have to treat like that and tailor our medicine to those cats that we have in front of us. Yeah, I think that's similar to lymphoma again, in parallels, you would adjust your dose according to response. And the, the cat I treated recently, I, I started a dose and then I increased it and it was queried by the owner and the vet saying, but it's on the right dose for effusive disease. And I was, I was like, there isn't a right dose for effusive disease. There's the mm-hmm. right dose for that cat with effusive disease. But as you and I know that when you post more some cats with FIP, often that's the tip of the iceberg and they could have neuroinvolvement that we don't know about and therefore they're mm-hmm. going to need a higher dose. So I do see it as much more fluid in that way. And I think there are some cats that sail along at 10 mg per kick and are totally cured. And then there are some cats that seem to require 20 mg per kick. And why? I don't, we don't know the answer do quite to that, your I suppose. Clock, your 84-day clock in cats after you've increased the dose and they've responded? What sort of to oh. restart at the higher dose? No, not always, I have to say. I'll then monitor them. It depends at what point we've increased it. I think if we've increased it, we've had a couple of effusive cats where we've the effusion's not completely resolved and we've not been completely happy at about three or four weeks. And we think, I think probably four to six weeks is quite an important point where I'd like to see everything looking pretty much normal biochemically and clinically. And I start to get twitchy if it's not, or if they're saying, oh, they're much, much better, but they're not quite right. Or for a neuro case, the low is better, but they're still slightly ataxic, something like that. I start to get a bit nervous and would increase the dose without hesitation at that point. And then, it, and then I would consider adding another month of treatment at the end if they could afford it. So I suppose it depends on the, at the point at which we increase it. And as you said, finances and yeah. response as well. I think with stopping treatment can be actually quite a scary point for owners and, and vets. You've probably seen through the advice line, people say, should I just extend, should I just extend? And at some points, when you've got persistent niggly bits, you just have to stop. Do you yeah. agree? You just have to, at some point, you've got They're to They're really difficult. And actually, I think what we can go on to just briefly talk at the moment is those positive cases, that, those positive outcomes where we've got a cat that had FIP, nailed the diagnosis, put them on treatment. They got better really quickly. Their bloods are now utterly normal. They've got to that 84-day milestone and the breaks with you know, the reins are on for that point we yeah we do get lots of owners going what do I do now is it going to come back how do I know and it's really difficult to know and we also getting owners go when shall I neuter if they're not already neutered when should I yeah that's yeah. quite common and what do you tell people in that situation if you've got like you say you started treating them at five months of age or something like that and we've had certainly a few people where they're starting to show obviously they've gone through through puberty and they're starting to show Signs, which, as we all know, in both male and female cats, can be quite intolerable. Do we need? To, when it, do we need again, to? Again, it's a really difficult question. I think we have to be really honest with our owners to say that we don't know the absolute answer here. It's not there. It's not available to us. We are. We have to be guided by the cats in front of us and the anecdotal data that we have to us coming in from a lot of the online discussion forums. And I think we have to be open to that is where some of the data comes from, and. Again, it's case by case basis where a lot of these cats, you know, and these owners are going to be very stressed and anxious about a cat that is wanting to go outside and find the boy, find the girls and keeping them indoors is too stressful for everybody involved. And actually, if they are in remission on treatment, then, you know, there is an argument for, again, supremely great cat handling practice, having them in rapidly minimizing the stress to them and then getting them rapidly back home again 
at a time when they're on antiviral medication to suppress any recrudescence that might happen to try and nip that in the bud. So that I think there, there is that window when they are, you know, towards the end of treatment, when they're still on medication for neutering them, if things are, you know, if there's an issue. The alternative is trying to wait out those three months, those magical three months at the end of treatment to see whether you have a relapse. Because I think for a lot of these owners, if you neuter them a month or so after they finish treatment and they relapse, the worry always is, did they relapse because I neutered them and that was an added stress or were they always going to relapse? And I think without yeah. doing lots and lots of testing along the way, it's really difficult to know that. And, and as I was saying, we might not change yeah. how we manage those cats. So why would we do that testing and follow-up? I would always be saying, you know, if we can either neuter on treatment or we'd be waiting a few months after treatment and neutering at that stage once we're a few as far out as we can be from that treatment end. And I, I totally agree. And I think good analgesia, even for cat castrates, cat castrates deserve analgesia too. So minimise the, yeah, the stress of the procedure. And I think that is a lot less yes. stressful than having an unneutered male trying to get out. Um, having a short, that short procedure, as you say, with good cat friendly handling and facilities and things, have them in first thing in the morning when there's no dogs around, just take extra care. Having said that, we're not basing that on any evidence. We, we don't know. It, it, we know that stress could you know, recrudesce potentially any viral infection. And so we assume this is the same. But what about vaccination is the other thing, because a lot of these cats are, we've had a few that are potentially partway through their initial either partway through their initial vaccine course or due that crucial one year yeah, boost during that's a treatment. Really cool one. I think the, the easiest thing to the easiest section to answer are the are the cats that have had their one year booster. We know that quite a large number of cats, when you check the antibody levels when they're six months old or so, still are deficient in antibodies against the what we're vaccinating against. So that that six to twelve months vaccination is really, really important in these cats. But if they've already achieved or they succumb to FIP, then actually, as long as you minimise their risks, you have a nice period to be able to hold off vaccinating them. So if they're, unless they are in the city, going into categories, fraternising with lots of other cats, you can probably hold off vaccinating them. And antibody levels against PANLUC are going to be really high. Um, and hopefully they should have some protection against cat flu and, and such that were they to even get exposed to it or go down with it, it would likely to be at a low level. As you said, the difficult ones, the ones that have had their incomplete first vaccinations or ones that haven't had that first annual booster. And again, it's really difficult to say. We know that the studies have shown that a lot of cats with FIP, about half of them, developed FIP in the few months, weeks, months after they've had that stress event, that visit to the vets, the neutering, the vaccination, microchipping. But then again, show me a young cat that hasn't had all of that in the preceding 12 months. And so I think it is really, it is that kind of cost-benefit analysis going, what are my risks associated with this cat? If they're indoor only, not seeing other cats, not going outside, um, not having other cats in the household go outside. I think sometimes owners miss that when they've got the moggy that goes outside, but the pedigree doesn't. And they think that their pedigree cat is not at risk of what the going to bring in I think we we have to balance that up and that actually goes for every time we vaccinate that's is that risk benefit analysis to to what we're doing there and you could schedule it for when you're due to come in and see them for a post post stopping medication checkup make sure the weights 
day and a small vaccination when you were due to examine them anyway I think that's relatively low risk but yeah again it's it's having that frank discussion with the owners going what is their worst case scenario their cat developing cat flu or their cat relapsing death by pee within the month or so after stopping treatment after they have vaccinated would they worry that bringing their cat in for that vaccine has has made them relapse and and I think it's given the owners that option and having that really open discussion with them and communicating with them their risks and benefits is so important so they can understand that yeah yeah and again obviously always bang on about cat friendly clinic but even in vaccine appointments and I actually recommended someone who their cat was hopefully in remission if we call it that or cured of FYP who got very stressed going into the clinic to get a home visiting home visiting cat only vets to come out and minimize the the trauma and the stress of the whole experience and whether that helps or not I suppose we don't fully know but as you say it's always risk benefit and we're hoping these cats are cured and go on to live for 18 years so we'd rather they didn't get Panduke or something after that so because that would be awful after all that treatment although that did happen that has happened in one case that I just heard about where they went through all the treatment and then it got run over afterwards which is awful I know awful case um I don't know if we've got much more time here Emma but I'll bring you back in here oh no thank you guys no this has been amazing thank you very much i think it's been a really great discussion on updates of fip and how vets can now approach these cases going forward to get the best outcomes for their patients and managing the client expectations and actually supporting them along this journey not just during treatment but also after i think that's quite important i think we've really touched on that today so yeah just like to say thank you very much both of you again and um look forward to seeing you again thank you These podcasts are aimed for registered vets and veterinary nurses. If you're listening as a pet owner, then we always advise that if you have any concerns about your animal, then please consult with your local veterinary surgeon.